I'm blessed to say that my parents are celebrating 60 years of marriage next year. So, uh, and I don't know how they do that because they're in their 50s, so it's really a pretty amazing thing. Um, trying to think how you introduce your father, and uh, I, I really grew up with the best pastor uh, that I could have had, and just happened to be my dad. And um, I, I was trying to think as, a, as she was playing, there, there are four things my dad loves without question. He loves the Lord. Um, there's no doubt about that if you've ever talked to him for any length of time. Uh, he loves his family. He's a great dad, granddad, husband, um, great-grandpa. We don't have any great-great-grandkids yet. Um, he loves the Word of God, and that's where I learned it. Um, if you have been uh, here at the church for any length of time, you know that we love the Word of God at this church. And uh, much of that is bred from the fact that I grew up under his ministry and he loves the Word. But more than anything, well, not more than anything, in addition, my dad loves people. We always have a running joke that if you get on an elevator with him, he will know everything about you by the time you get to the bottom floor. And if he meets you 30 years later, he'll still remember it. Um, it's that, it's frightening, actually a little bit. I have to be honest with you, it's a little scary. But um, he loves people, he loves souls, he loves knowing that people know Jesus Christ. So it's just a joy to welcome him this morning. Thank you for allowing him to, to be here. And uh, Ross Rhodes, let's welcome him. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. What a beautiful church. What a wonderful congregation. Uh, I am so happy, Carol and I, to be here this morning. We thank you for being faithful and from all that you could be doing this morning, you came to church. And congratulations to all the graduates. Today is commencement day, right? How many are affected in one way or another? Sister, aunt, uncle, mother, Grandfather, grandmother, mother, dad, whoever, would you put your hands up? Yeah, that's a good percentage of the congregation. We had the joy yesterday of uh, going to the commencement of the eighth grade of the Christian school and our daughter. Uh, I got chills when they read the name. Uh, Annie Elizabeth Rhodes, wow. There are two students that gave speeches both of them were absolutely magnificent. And uh, there was an assistant pastor, a youth pastor, and he got up and he preached. And it was a wonderful thing to be part of that celebration. Uh, I watched the commencement addresses because I speak for a living, and I was impressed by uh, George W. Bush. I don't know whether you saw that or not. He has kind of an aw shucks way, and uh, it was some big university, and he got up and he said, well, congratulations to all of you who graduated with honors and so on. But he said, for you C students, he said, remember, you could be the president. Because <laughs> he was a C student. I was D in Hebrew, but uh, anybody who was above D must have been ingenious, but it's been quite a season. Well, how are you? And we're praying for you in the transition Good congregation this morning, and I must say, I would say this if I were a guest in any church, and that's what I do in traveling. Uh, uh, your pastor, our son, we uh, listen to him on the podcast. I listen to about a dozen preachers and pastors who are my favorites, and Paul is, without a doubt, the clearest, most biblical common and yet very intellectual, uh, a great uh, executor of the Word of God, and uh, just a commendable pastor. Pastors are to feed and lead, watch and warn. That's the scripture. So weddings and uh, buildings and things like that are not in the New Testament. They came after the first century. But the primary position of the pastor is to feed you. The most successful churches in America, not by numbers necessarily, are churches that have a pastor who can feed you. I don't know where this assistant pastor, youth pastor was from yesterday, but I tell you, I'd go back and hear him. He was so good. And talking to eighth graders, he had to really pound the nail pretty low. And he treated Ephesians 2.10 like a theologian and yet with great power. So 
I want you to give it up for your pastor. That's what they say. They say, give it up for the pastor. And for the sweet sister that gave me the bulletin when we came in about 10 and 9, for Brad and uh, Paul and Tony, the sound people, if you can't see and you can't hear, you don't have any service, right? So give it up for the staff and the people that help, the volunteers. I'd like some interaction today. We're not going to preach long, but uh, I want some interaction. I want you to be involved in what we're talking about this morning. I, I want to suggest as our theme, look to Jesus. Say that with me. Look to Jesus. One more time. Look to Jesus. We were watching tennis this week, uh, Djokovic and uh, the others, and every once in a while you'll see the tennis player, the pros, who are making a million two to pay the final match in the French Open, they'll look over to the coach. In Djokovic's uh, coach, it's Becker. He was a great tennis player, a German fellow. And he would look over there. I don't know what signals they do, but he looks over there. Uh, even in Little League, you'll have uh, the line coach. And we remember last year the tough decision in NFL when they uh, were saying that they knew the signals ahead of time and you'll see the coach do this to cover his mouth so they don't, whatever. So there's always a checking back and forth. So that theme, look to Jesus, tell me again what it is. Look to Jesus is the theme of the morning. So we're going to ask ourselves who is Jesus and what are we supposed to do about it. Every sermon, every teaching, every Bible study ought to do three things for you. They ought to make you think. And they ought to make you feel. And then at the end, they ought to make you want to do something. And I'd like to do that this morning. There is a phrase repeated throughout this book, I'll tell you what it is in a minute, that is phrased, let us, let us, let us, let us. If you would read the book all by yourself, you'd run into that phrase. And if you were taking really serious consideration of the Bible, you'd underline those. Now, for years, I've known the book. It's one of the most... Uh, uh, profound books in the New Testament, but uh, until this morning, I never took those let us's and formed them into something to think about for you. So the theme is what? And the key line will do about five. Uh, the key line is let us. Say that again. Let us. One more time. Let us. Uh, I remember when children were young, and I was pastoring at the time, it seemed always a crunch to get everybody in the car at the same time, and we would hear somebody, probably me, the loud mouth, I'd say, let's go, let's go. Have you ever noticed where you kind of shout at your children and you lose your uh, kind of uh, sweet talk when you're trying to get to church? You're kind of shouting at them, and you say, we're supposed to go to church. We're pushing everybody around. Let's go, let's do. I did a... Uh, tournament uh, down in Florida of fishing people, a thousand boats. And uh, a friend of mine runs that. His name is Arthur Smith. And uh, he wrote Dueling Banjos. And he said, come down and pray. <laughs> you imagine that. So before a microphone, all these boats are out in the ocean. And he said, when you finish your prayer, say, let's fish. But you have to say it that way. And I didn't say it quite that way because I'm not from the South. But uh, as soon as I said, let fish, those guys jammed that up and went out. And, of course, the trophy was about fifty dollars to $60,000. Or I live in NASCAR. How many like NASCAR, watch NASCAR? Probably not too many here. But they say, start your engines. And that's what I want to kind of do today. I want to create in you a desire to look to Jesus, to understand Jesus, and appreciate him high and lifted up. And then with a couple of suggestions, it's a unifying message, come to think of it. It's for everybody in the church, let us. So that includes me and you. Let us as a church. Let us as individuals do something. Uh, I came from the Lutheran tradition. Uh, as a boy, I stood down there and said, I renounce the devil and all his works and ways at uh, 12. How many were Lutherans? And part of our our family were Catholics, and so we lived with uh, an image like that. 
and with stained, your stained glass windows here are gorgeous. And uh, I remember uh, seeing that image and remembering Christ. Of course, the stained glass window and the images were created in the Middle Ages because there were no books, no television, nothing to give a visual picture of what the Bible meant. One of these stained, oh, this one over here, has a man bending over with a rock on his shoulder. That would come from John Bunyan, who described uh, people who are seeking God with this big thing on their back, and it tumbles when they get to the Christ. I don't know whether that's the meaning, but the, or he could be saying rock of ages, but he wouldn't be bending over. That's kind of, but every image was created there so people could see, and uh, they were to look to Jesus. This image, I think, is, is very beautiful, even though in my tradition, we wouldn't do that in a church, but it's beautiful and very humble, my opinion. So what I would like you today is to look to Jesus. Now the book we're going to look at, we're going to try to do 13 chapters in like 25 minutes, is the book of Hebrews. Do you have a Bible? Would you take it please? And uh, would you open to it to Hebrews? I've been listening to Paul in Philippians and he says he has three more messages. His last message was using the word run. Incredible teaching. And uh, so the book of Hebrews uh, has to be understood in a way that we would use when we say, look to Jesus. Thirteen chapters. And of all the books in the New Testament, thanks for listening and looking at your Bible at the same time, there are two types of books in the New Testament. There are letters, not really books, but they're books. Letters that are written to churches. The church at Galatia, the church at Ephesus, uh, the church at Thessalonica. We had a family in our church on Thessalonica. Uh, then you have written to the Romans and then the Corinthians and so on. So they're written to churches. Then you have three or four books that are written to people. And Paul writes to Pastor Timothy and then to Titus and then the little book of Philemon. So they're church-centered and individual-centered. This book, listen, this book is written to all believers. And the believers that it was written to are believers who, I would say, like your church, who know the Bible. They understand the basic things about the Bible. They know that they're prophets and God did wonderful things in the past, the miracles and so on. In fact, the, the book, if you're in chapter 1, that's a good place to start, in the first 25 words, it identifies Jesus and they call him the Son of God. I remember talking to a cab driver. Most of the cab drivers or limousine drivers in Charlotte, a friend of ours provides a car to pick us up because Charlotte is under terrible construction. And every one of the drivers that picks us up and takes us to the airport are Muslim. There's 60 limo drivers in this one company and they're all Muslim. So you've got 35, 40 minutes, you might as well talk. You know, so I ask questions. I use the word mijnun, which in uh, Arabic means crazy, and you, you try to make some kind of a contact. And then when you talk about Jesus, I just say he was the son of God, that's when the conversation is over. He was a prophet. He was born of a virgin. He's coming again with the great, great mullah, but he's not the son of God, and he did die for sins. There's no forgiveness in Islam. So in the first 25 words of this book, it says God in different times, in different ways, in times past, has spoken unto us by his Son. So the Son of God is called the Son of God, Jesus, in the first chapter. At the last part uh, of the book, chapter 12, it says, look unto Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith, and for the joy that sit before him endured the cross. Let us run the race, okay? There's the let us. So I'd like you to go to the first or seven or eight of these, and let's just, let's just enjoy doing, let's say, three or four. Would you go to chapter four, please? And uh, we'll look at the first one. It's in verse one, chapter four and verse one. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left to us 
would prevent us from being restful and happy, and any should come short of it, okay? Uh, we, last time we were here, went to the toll to get off at O'Hare, and they needed like 35 cents. Well, I had whatever I had, I threw it in, and I got a $100 fine. I came short of what I needed. So a lot of us have come short. Uh, you go to the store and don't have quite enough money, and, and uh, we purchased something yesterday. We got a new uh, card because one was stolen out of our mailbox. So we got the card, and somehow we didn't call in or whatever. And he said, I'm sorry, your card doesn't work. So I fortunately had another card, and I used it. But uh, you come short. And, and this verse says, you know the Bible, you know the Scripture, you know the promises, but you're going to come short. Because look at it, let us fear. Now look, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word that was preached did not seem to profit. It didn't pay any dividends. There wasn't any change. Not being mixed with faith of those who heard it. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you had a word for fear, and that's what the scripture says, it's the word phobia. Uh, I'm afraid of a lot of things, but most of them are silly. Uh, yesterday, I put my bag down at the airport. I dialed Paul to find out where he was, and I looked around, the bag was gone. It had my Bible, well marked. I'm using my wife's this morning. And all my notes for this morning, two little laptops with all my information, a pair of sunglasses, and some little money that we had planned to give to the children. Well, talk about fearing. Finally, yesterday, after doing all we did, Paul got on the phone, a Hispanic lady called, and she says, I have your bag. It's right next to Starbucks. Let the people of the Lord say amen. I missed mostly the Bible, and I think maybe when somebody looked in the hand luggage, they said, uh-oh, this guy's some kind of a religion thing. I better turn it in, but uh, I'm glad for that. I'm afraid of having a stroke. Uh, I could die by heart attack or automobile accident, or we do like 75 flights a year. Just came back from Europe. I'm a little afraid of the sharks over Atlantic if uh, we had to do a sea landing, but I fear most having a stroke. Several of my friends have had them. My sister had one and is still living but can't speak. But uh, some things you can't change and you shouldn't be afraid of them. But the one thing that seems to be missing many times in most of us about fear is the fear of God. Uh, somehow we think because we've been taught grace and because we've looked at Jesus and he's forgiven us of all our sins that we just kind of put it on hold. And we know we're saved, and so on and so on. But what we say and what we do, there's a little bifurcation. There's a little separation. And he says, let us be concerned. Say that to me. Let us be concerned. If you want to use the word fear, that's the word here, phobia, scared. Let's be concerned that we've heard the gospel. That's everybody in this room, I'm sure. Even our friend who came in, who's homeless. You've heard about Jesus, you know about the story of God, and you know what it means to be saved. If you know what it means to be saved, say amen. amen. But somehow, chapter 2, it's had some slippage. Somehow, like me dropping my bag yesterday, I know better. And the announcement keeps saying, if you see an unmarked bag, call police, whatever. And where I dropped it, there was a patrol car at the street because it was outside the airport. And I imagine when I turned away, he got out and picked up that bag because they turned it into lost and found. Just carelessness. I wasn't watching. I know better. We just got back from Europe. Ten flights. I know to watch your hand luggage. But I got careless. I took it for granted. And my friend, member of this precious church, you've taken a lot of things for granted. And you don't realize that you're snubbing God. You don't realize that you're taking advantage of him. Do you ever have a friend who takes advantage of you? Uh, that, that kind of abuses the trust? You ever been betrayed? Have you ever been lied about? Have you ever been criticized? Have you ever trusted somebody and it fades? And all of a sudden they, 
turn against you. That's what we do to God. That's hard to take. And I'm not picking a fight. But we know Him. We trust Him. But the amount of reliance and fear that God is a just God. And we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No foolishness. No lawyer. No language problem. To receive the things done in the body that would be good or bad. So, you and I have to, as a congregation, let's be concerned. Let's not take God for granted. If you understand that, say amen. What's our theme? Look to Jesus. What are the key lines? Let us. Are you with me? Say it again. Let us. All right, look chapter 4, if you would, please, uh, to 11. 11. Here, uh, it says, let's labor. Let's labor. Now, uh, we think of the word labor. Stay with me. I'm trying to excite you to an illustration. Uh, I met a lady this morning who has five children. Uh, we have uh, 17 grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. So we've been to the maternity section many, many times. And uh, I've heard the children talk uh, in the last kind of minutes of giving birth, somebody will say, push, push, push. And what do we call that? We call it labor, labor pains. The French labor party in France is called the travail, the travail party. And the whole workers' movement was formed on that word, the labor. The early communists in the 30s were called the Communist Labor Party. And what's behind Marxism, which is somewhat the familiar uh, interest of our government, which is a mistake, is called the labor movement, where it's called in communism the redistribution of wealth. So the people who make money, you take money from them and you give it to the people that can't pay or won't work and so on, kind of level everything out. And uh, the labor movement has become that. But that's not the point. But you got the point. The point is, let's be diligent. Let's work. Let's be conscientious. Now, look at, look at the verse, what it says. Uh, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into the rest, lest any of us fall away from this salvation, uh, and we become unbelieving. You stop reading the Bible, you stop being convinced you're a Christian. And if you stop reading the Bible, you stop praying. I mean, other than bless this lunch to the nourishment of our body, in Jesus' name, amen, pass the fries. I mean, the casual thing that Christians do. And it says, let's be diligent. Tell me that. Let's be diligent. One more time. Let's be diligent. It means to be sensitive and conscientious, to be deliberate. And the problem with not being that way, child of God, of being deliberate and focused and not taking for granted, as we said in the first point, is that you become sour. And the first thing happens is you become critical. Criticism is a result of someone who really doesn't fear God and is not struggling and striving to be a believer. And what happens is, and the key is faith, the faith kind of fades, and then the person sours, and then they go back to their old friends, the drinking buddies and the people that watch the wrong kind of videos, and who are just occasional churchgoers. You fall into that worldly crowd, and then you become just like them. And then when you become like them, you can't witness to them, can't tell them anything. You can't say, God answered prayer. I call all the men that are in my study in Charlotte that have been meeting with me for 20 years. I texted all of them, said, pray, I lost my bag. It was serious. All my information on the two laptops, I mean, that's serious information, which I could never replace, plus my Bible, which I've had for years. So you can't tell anybody, as I did. I wasn't planning to tell you about my bag but to say God answered prayer. And I got texts back from my brothers. These are men 65 to 80. And they know how to text, but that's about it. 
and they'll text me and say, we were praying, praise the Lord, thank God, Ross found the bag, and so on. You can't tell people about things like that because you've faded. You've stopped trying. You're not diligent. You're not making an effort. And it says you don't come into rest. So you're not a happy person. Critical people are not happy. Critical people are sour. They're looking at their guilt and don't have any grace. And they worry and they just live emotionally unhappy lives. And what does that happen? That happens from, look at the next verse, the word of God is swift and powerful than any two-edged sword. You stop reading the Bible, things begin to unravel. And then it affects your children. And it affects what they do, what they think. If they don't see you pray, they're not going to pray. If you didn't bring your Bible to church this morning, why should they bring theirs? If you're not praying around the table at least once in a while, I'm not asking you to be a church person at the table. But if in the family room you don't walk with Jesus, you can't expect them to follow Jesus and ever consider going to the ends of the earth and serving the Lord or going into the ministry. The children are an extension of what you think and believe and the way you act. And so the answer to this feeling of being ho-hum is the Word of God, which cuts down to the soul. So we need to be diligent. Tell me that. Be what? Diligent. All right, and our theme for the day is what? Looking unto Jesus. Are you still with me? Say amen. amen. Okay, let's look at another one. Number three, would you go to chapter six? And on chapter six, you have basically what I've been saying for the last uh, kind of 15 minutes. Look at chapter six. Therefore, leaving the first principles of Christ. What are the first principles of Christ? Well, just read it. The Bible will tell you what it says. Uh, well, your foundation of repentance what it means to be a Christian, works, and your, your faith toward God, a baptism, which is a ritual. I was a christened when I was a little baby, and then I was baptized as a believer, so okay, laying on of hands. A Lutheran pastor used to put his hand on me every Sunday and say, God bless you. Actually, I was named after him. His name is Dr. Ross Stover, and my parents gave me the name Ross Stover Rhodes, which is my father's name. And he always put his hand on me. And I remember after I got saved, I went to visit him. It was a very, very sweet visit, this pastor. Never forgot him. Don't remember my third grade teacher? She used to pinch my ear to get me to listen. And uh, Pastor Stover would do that. The laying on of hands. Uh, we have a familiarity with these things. Keep on looking. Resurrection from the dead, eternal judgment. And then it says this, it's impossible to renew you, impossible to renew you if you take for granted Jesus and don't repent from the fact that you need to go on. A lot of Christians have never gone on. And may the Lord help you to see this. Maybe this is your experience. You're stalled. You're not progressing. You feel the movement of sensing Christ. Remember what I said about the preaching of the word. You feel it. And that's where the charismatic, the Pentecostals, where they have something that we traditional evangelicals don't have. They have a lot of feeling and shouting and dancing in the aisles. And, of course, the Reformed people, the Bible people like us, we said, well, it's all feeling, and they don't have any theology. There are more Pentecostals graduating from seminaries these days than Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Baptists, and so on. They're strong theologians, so they've got both. But the feeling is lost. The sense of his presence. The Bible speaks about the angel of his presence. Everything you do should uh, be done with the sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I was speaking in uh, Florida this time last week, and uh, I went on the web, and I saw this new, um, uh, what are these uh, things that 
fly over you and stuff. What is that name? Drones, yeah. And uh, this is called N-I-X-I-S. I saw it on the web. And when I said it in the teaching, I'm sure most of the people said, yeah, Ross, you're crazy. But by the time I was finished, the guy in a church had found it on the web. So it's on the web. It's a watch. And when you touch the watch, this watch becomes a drone. And it hangs over your head for about 20 minutes, then has a battery. And then you pull it back, and it comes back and becomes a watch. And it's for skiing or wherever, wherever you want to take a selfie movie of yourself, you get one of these deals, and they're advertised about $500, which is nothing. Well, I used that as an illustration, and uh, the illustration was the Holy Spirit here. Both of my rotator cuffs are gone, so that's why I'm kind of awkward here. I can't get my hand up. But over the head is this kind of drone thing, the size of a wristwatch. Serious. And it's photographs, camera, everything you do. Is that not the Holy Spirit who covers us, who watches us, looking unto Jesus? What do you think he's doing? He's looking to you. He's watching what you do. Every thought has to be put under the captivity of the Holy Spirit, St. Paul says. What you're thinking about right now, heaven is recording it. And when you stand before the Lord, he'll play the tape or whatever, DVD, whatever it is, of your life. And that's why the Bible says every mouth will be stopped and we will be naked before God. There's no cover-up. There's nothing you can do. And the theme of this book is for these people who know it all, not that they're cocky or anything. It's not cocky faith. It's nonchalance faith. It's assumptive. The Bible says be careful of presumptuous sins. You assume God's going to answer prayer but you have unconfessed sins. You've broken fellowship with a brother. You haven't sought forgiveness from somebody you backed it or something. You haven't settled it, unresolved. Now, this is personal for Carol's sake, but Carol has a sister. And uh, when her folks died, they had significant money. Uh, Her sister's son was a lawyer. So the five of us are reading the will. Uh, somebody got this painting. Uh, his brother got a painting, uh, which uh, he never got because her sister stole it. And in the process, the nephew, the sister's son, lawyer, cleaned everything out and took it all for herself. So we had a tearful thing, and uh, the sister walked out. She's a Wheaton graduate. She's a believer. I mean, that's what she says, right? But since then, 12 years ago, she will not communicate with us. Carol's written her 27 times. She sent another Christmas card to her this year. And I said, you did what? And she said, yes, for Jesus' sake. I was dead meat. There's nothing I could answer. She's reached out to her till the day she dies. I don't think she'll ever communicate. Even though she was wrong. Her brother died. She never came to the funeral. Our daughter bought a condo in the same area as the sister. And she didn't know that Aunt Connie was down the street. So when we went to the condo for a couple of days, I was preaching out there, Carol took a note, put it on the front door. Hey, Connie, because you can't get in. It's a gated thing, one of those snitchy things. You can't get in unless you're an owner. And she'd put one on the garbage pail. We'd go back, note was gone. So she knows, right? Not a word. Well, that's not only not nice. It's not only not being part of the family. It's holding Carol in bondage that she hasn't done enough to get her sister back, and her sister's thrilled that Carol's upset and her side of our family got silch. You see, when you live a life not close to the Savior, you don't feel anything anymore. And the effects of Christ and his death, his forgiveness, and his reconciliation are nada, and it's impossible for you to 
to guarantee that you're saved. We can say once saved, we're always saved. That's good. It's a wonderful doctrine. But if the person doesn't show any evidence of that, what proof is he that the Spirit of God lives in his heart if he has no evidence of the faith? And remember, Jesus said, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord. And again, I'm not criticizing this church. My son's the pastor. But Jesus said to the people then who knew the law of Moses and the miracles and whatever, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, and even those that speak and prophesy in my name, I will say to them, depart from you. You are never on the invitation list. And this passage in Hebrews is the most critical of any verse throughout all the Bible. It is impossible to be renewed if you don't go on. If you don't go on. One more passage. Do you mind turning? Let's look at the last one. And we're through. Since my notes were lost yesterday. Uh, chapter 10, would you turn there? Thank you for listening. The attention of this room is marvelous, Paul. You've taught them well. Chapter 10, verse 22. Here's another one. Let us draw near with a pure heart, sincere. Blessed are the poor in heart, they shall see God, Jesus said. Let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, Verse 23, there's another one. Let's hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering, for God is faithful, as Carol played for the offertory, great is God faithful. How many are glad this morning that God is faithful? Say amen. He doesn't lie, doesn't abrogate, doesn't change his mind, keeps his word. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That settles it. Just believe. He has promised. This is his promise. Now, what, what, what? Tell me, what should we do? We should come near to that. Now, when something is said in the negative, you also listen to it in the positive. I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If you do not believe, you won't be saved. Uh, the scripture says, draw near. That must mean, this is a big, very important church. It, it must mean that people haven't drawn near. I mean, that makes sense, right? Let's draw near. And there are many, many people in the church in this service this morning and in the thousands of churches in our world, particularly those believers that are being headed, beheaded in Mosul, which is uh, the ancient city of Nineveh. Uh, we dropped 100,000 blankets to them, Samaritan's Purse did, and have pastors on the field for those people that are fleeing from Syria and so on. We have a hospital in Mafrak, which is below Amman, Jordan. And there are 150,000 Syrians. Many of them are ISIS people who are within reach of our hospital. And when they get a little strength, they'll destroy our hospital and kill the Christian doctors. And the Jordan company, the Jordan country, is next. So there's very significant trouble around the world. Believers are doing more than sitting comfortably in this beautiful church. I love this church. Well, you have to draw near. You have to do something about it. Are you here this morning and you need to draw near? Remember, this is not just for a few. This is a let us thing. Let us draw near. Let us come closer. A hymn comes to mind. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. A quiet place, a special place, a tender place, a place where you feel the agent's of his Holy Spirit. Let us draw there. And let's hold fast. In the second chapter, it says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Neglect means you just overlook it, take it for granted, like my bag. A draw near, you forget that you're drifting. If you feel away from the Lord this morning, it's not his fault. He's here, his holy angels are here, the demons are here, trying to pick up the seed of the word as I preach it. A spiritual conflict going on right in this room, which if you had te television from heaven, you can see it. So right in your heart this minute, have you drawn near? Are you close? 
If everybody was spiritually warm as you are today, would this be a good church? I think it's a wonderful church. With all you've come through and we keep in touch and follow the track and so on. And I think your future is brighter than your present. What it is, I don't know. But here sits this morning in this very beautiful building a group of people who are believers. But some of you have drifted away. Some of you are cold. The Bible says of these people, they had a hard heart. Hard means it's become stiff and brittle, unfeeling, and then uncaring. And when you come to the place where you don't care, you don't give a rap, it is what it is, so what? I got other things to do, and I'm just taking pictures of myself and my own life. When that happens, he says, let's fear, let's be careful, let's labor. It's impossible for you to get back. If you disregard what you had, you'll slip away. And the Bible says, you'll fall in unbelief. The only thing that will cause people to miss heaven, listen, and go to hell, will be faith. Will be faith. We think of all the obnoxious sins going on in the world uh, this morning. We sat in front of two of uh, uh, the people that are in love with each other, and they're both men. They're sitting in front of us. Uh, you know, probably a lot of people who'd commit adultery, and maybe my heart wasn't clean. God's not looking at those kind of overt sins. He's looking at the heart. What did you do with Jesus? He died for you. Have you believed in him? Are you following him? Twice in the New Testament, the word is follow. He left his nets and he followed Christ. How about the beggar down in Jericho? He followed Jesus in the way. How about the fellow that was filled with demons and naked and had tattoos and so on? He wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus said within 15 minutes of his conversion, and they put clothes on him. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord had done for you. The Christian experience is not just accepting Christ. That is, that'll get you to heaven, maybe. But if you've taken it for granted, if you've drifted away, I don't know. I'm no judge. But if you feel his presence as much as you can if you love him, if you desire to follow him, if you're being careful uh, by not being too casual and indifferent and nonchalant about your faith, you need to draw near. You need to get a hold of it again. And I'm going to give you an opportunity, a couple of minutes to do that. Um, come down and stand with me. And said it's been ho-hum. Half full, half empty. Something is missing. I don't know what it is. But I need to fear, be diligent, be cautious, make an effort. Don't take for granted. Now look at the last one, chapter 12, and I'm finished. Beautiful. Seeing we are encompassed about with all these people that are watching what we're doing, some believe that's angels. Some believe it's people who look down from heaven a lot of people think, and I've heard people say, well, he's watching us. Or people will say, Daddy, we hope you see us. No, Daddy doesn't see anything. Daddy only sees the things that are good. If Daddy saw what was going on in your family, Daddy would not like that. And if Daddy knew that a lot of the children went to hell, it wouldn't be happy. There are no tears, no crying, no aspiration, no want. Jesus is all. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all you have for eternity. Say amen. amen. Sure. Who are these witnesses? Seeing we are encompassed about by all of these witnesses, I believe they're angels, personally. But what does it say? Let us run, Paul's message. Uh, the thing that's been set before us, let's be patient, look at the line, Looking to Jesus, that's our theme. Chapter 2, and chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him. You know the verse. The risen Savior is on the cross, he's happy. 
Can you be sad and happy at the same time? Sure. You have a loved one who died. You miss them, but you're happy they're in heaven. You can be happy and sad at the same time. Our blessed Lord despised the shame. He could still feel the dry spit on his face. I think he might still be able to feel the perfume that Mary poured at his feet just a few hours before. He despised the shame, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You know, we all need a baptism of the vision of heaven. Paul says, my citizenship is in heaven. Paul gave a great illustration in his sermon about Paul saying citizenship, that your citizenship is where you're born. So your birth certificate as a Christian was in heaven. And when you die, you'll go home. That's kind of the favorite phrase at funerals. Well, mom went home. Mr. Graham is 96, can't hear, can't see, has 24-hour care. And he'll say every day, kind of cocks his one eye and says, I want to go be with Ruth. I want to go home. To be with the Lord, home in the Lord. That's a great illustration, Paul, especially about those stats about people who are United States citizens and they don't know. 68% of them, he quoted, don't know that the Atlantic Ocean is the Atlantic Ocean. Hello. At least they know there's an ocean out there, right? And we don't feel enough about heaven. Are your sins forgiven and are you sure you're going to heaven? Looking unto Jesus, let's look unto him. It says, and let us run the race. Run the race. Turn the page one more time and I'll close my Bible. It says here, verse 13, let us go forth. Let us go. Uh, we go out of this church this morning and, and everybody ought to say, the theme was looking unto Jesus. And, and the pastor talked about stuff, all of us, not stuff, all of the things we could do. We could be reverential and fear God. We could be diligent and sincere about our faith. We could be careful that we don't take for granted the only good thing that's going on today, which is the gospel of Jesus. We should be careful to look unto Jesus and run, and run the race. A lot of people are watching. The American church is filled with people who've heard about Jesus but they keep hearing about it every Sunday, over and over and over and over again. Our church is like that. We have a lawyer who's a preacher. He's not as good as Paul, and I wouldn't be glad or ha unhappy for him to know it. But boy, he teaches the Bible. We've taught, I preached 22 years, 4,000 sermons. Before that, we had a wonderful pastor, Dexter McClenney. He was a Bible teacher. He went on to Wheaton to pastor the Bible church. We had Ralph Norwood. He was there for 10 years. Dexter McClenney, he started the church. He was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute. This is the 30s. Our church has had Bible teaching and Bible teaching. No error, no schism, no doctrinal deviation. Got a choir, 92 programs to meet everybody's fancy. Somebody wants a program for Christians who have eating disorder. We got that. Somebody who wants to take care of old people in nursing home. We got a group to doing that. 95 programs. Well-ordered church since the 30s. But our church and the churches that I know, and that's my business, people are not going. They're not witnessing. They're not encouraging others. They're nonchalant. They know the faith. They're happy to go only so far. You can't do that. It's a race. Give you an illustration, I'm through. Have you watched uh, any of the news about Palmyra? It's an ancient city, and ISIS has finally taken over. It goes back to Abraham. It goes back to uh, Solomon. He built uh, chariot stalls. It's an old, old city. Some of the streets, like Washington Avenue, are a mile long. And there's still these Corinthian columns, like you see at a library or a special building. And they line this. A lot of them have been, of course, set up or broken down. It's a very important city. And the ISIS people are bulldozing it. Probably the most historic 
witness to history. Of course, there's no history, you know, beyond the Ottoman Empire for them. History begins with Muhammad. All of these great artifacts are being destroyed. Well, if you go on the website and you go in for Palmyra, you'll learn there were two avenues, two boulevards. One main boulevard, which is what I'm going to talk about, I'll not do the other, was probably a mile long, and it had palm trees and these great columns all the way along. And for those who were loyal to the king, the other boulevard led to the cemetery and torture because they had disregarded the king. Good illustration. This was the parade. So when the army captured people, the slaves would be in the parade. There are symbols in Pamara of the peacock. Peacock was a very important symbol. And there are peacocks and, uh, and uh, uh, great grape, symbols of grape, and all kinds of other things that were celebrative. And this long column was headed toward like the back of the church where a man is holding his baby. And the king was there, the ruler was there, the emperor was there. And so you got in line, all you who are loyal, all you who gave your pledge of allegiance, that's the only thing Rome required. The only thing Rome required was loyalty. And when the Jews were not loyal to Caesar, and Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, he was dead. You have to give loyalty. And so you would march in that parade. You would be headed toward the throne. You would give obeyance and honor. This is the symbol here. Only the word run means to walk fast. Get in that line. Get in that parade. Get in that great column. Because someday, the Lamb of God will be seated on the throne. And we will come to worship Him and sing to Him. And give knowledge to Him. Because He has said to the Father, Ross Rhodes is mine. Carol Rhodes is mine. They trusted me. They didn't disregard me. They didn't take for granted what I did. They tried as best they could, Lord, but they were saved by grace, but they were good laborers together. You'll be in that parade. Let me ask you, looking unto Jesus, what's the, what's the attitude of your heart? I don't know that. God does. Over your head, heaven is taking a picture of your life. And someday you stand before the Lord. The only thing he will say to Mr. Graham, who's conducted 600 crusades, and yet we had 400,000 people receive the Lord on the internet in the last two months, to the lowliest missionary in Mafrak, Aileen Coleman, who will probably be beheaded if we don't get her out, from the spectacular ministry of Mr. Graham, to Aline Coleman in Mafrock, Jordan, the only thing we'll hear from the Savior is, you did it well. You did it well. Faithful, good and faithful, enter into the joy of the Lord.